Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 16th, 2018, and this is episode 2147 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday, so it's just Jack's show. This one kind of ties in sort of like a series. Uh, last Tuesday we talked about like I think it was 21 new plants to try out in 2018, new seeds to, to buy and stuff like that, and the different plants and what they did and why you'd want to consider them and things like that. Well, um, I decided that today would be a good day to talk about seed starting, since I know I've heard from a lot of you, like, I just ordered a whole shitload of seeds, and I've heard from you guys, like, a lot of you <clears throat> tried to order from High Mowing and got with me, and the, the code was out of date, and I got the code updated for you, so I know there's a lot of seeds being ordered right now, and, and usually what happens after that is, uh, Jack, could you give me some help with seed starting? Sometimes it's, I've never done it before, and I want to know what to do. And sometimes it's, I'm doing it, and I got these problems. So try to head that off with the seed starting primer this year, all the way here in January, which is well in advance of when you need to be starting most seeds. Some of you, it's not a bad time to be starting seeds. I'm already starting some seeds. I may be a little early, but I'd rather be a little early than a lot late. But we'll talk about why you don't want to be too early as well, especially with certain plants. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is HarvestEating.com, the awesome chef Keith Snow. He's got some great courses for you to look at. Uh, the Paleo Beef Course and Food Storage Feast are just two great uh, educational products that he has available for you. He's got a great podcast. He's got a great line of spices and seasonings. And he's got a great blog and a great YouTube channel. You want to check all of that out and more because Chef Keith will teach you the basics of cooking from a technique standpoint. There's plenty of recipes there, but it's understanding the techniques and bringing certain different things together that make food storage feast, paleo beef course, and everything else by Chef Keith Snow so awesome. You can learn more where? HarvestEating.com. Next up today, the original survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Royal. Uh, Vic Rontala has a great company there, and we heard from Vic and Save Castle when we were nobody. Like, we see what you're doing, we believe in what you're doing, we want to sponsor the show. He was the first person to step up and want to do it, and he was actually turned down, not because they weren't doing anything right or something like that. I didn't have enough people yet. I didn't feel right taking a sponsor that early. I built the show up. I put together the sponsorship program that we've been running now for nine years. I said to Vic, do you want to be part of this now? He said, you bet I do. They stepped up and became sponsors of the show, and they've never left us. Can you imagine if somebody would have told you the Survival Podcast would pick up its first sponsor like almost nine years ago and would still have them today, that they would never leave us? It's pretty awesome. That's the kind of loyalty we've seen from Safe Castle. It's because they like doing business with you guys. And they do give you guys that free lifetime discount club membership. Everybody else in the world has to pay $29 a year for it. You guys get it for free. Check it out at safecastle.com. And before we get into the meat and potatoes today, so to speak, uh, let's take a look at a year in history. We're up to the year 91 AD. We have a fairly short segment, and we're going to come out of Rome for a while today with uh, David Verne at tspwiki.com. The Protectorate of the Western Regions. Under the command of General Ban Chao, the Han Dynasty has established control over the Western Regions, a group of small nations in modern-day Western China. Ban Chao has spent 30 years fighting Zonggu, the Zonggu, a nomadic people from Mongolia, and he has consistently defeated armies that are much larger than his. As a reward for his service, Ban Chao was awarded the title of Protector General of the Western Regions. My take by David Verne. The western regions were important because many of the trade routes that make up the Silk Road ran through the area. The Chinese established outposts and patrolled the roads to protect the trade that flowed between the Roman Empire and the Chinese Empire. The two nations were aware of each other, but neither had managed to send official delegation. The Parthian Empire, which sat between the two, tried to prevent either empire from establishing diplomatic relations since they profited greatly from charging exorbitant taxes on the Silk Road trade. Um, yeah, and I would also think that if you're the Parthians, and you have this huge Roman Empire 
to your one border and this huge Chinese empire to your other border, and they're both kind of stronger than you, and you've had a little trouble with both of them, you just might not want them figuring out that, hey, you know what? If we're not greedy, we could just get rid of those Parthians and extend both of our empires to where they meet. And if we cooperate with each other, gee, how much stronger could both of our empires be? I mean, I'm not saying that would have happened or did happen or could happen. I'm just saying, like, if you were Parthia, you wouldn't just want to keep those taxes. You might want to keep control of what you have. And having the Chinese and the, and the Romans cozy up at this point in history would probably not be good for you long term. And that's something that we see happen as a dynamic in many relationships between nations or even just between individuals. Somebody in the middle may really prefer that those two sides not get directly together. We see that in business relationships. We see that everywhere. You know, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it does always rhyme. That's my thoughts on that one. Just real quick today, what I'll say about the MSB is, hey, it's a good deal. Consider signing up for it. We'll make it short. And with that, we'll get into the main topic of today's show. I'm doing something different than I think I've ever, I don't think I've ever done this before, at least this way. The uh, about first 15 minutes of the show today is going to be a segment from 2012. I don't consider this show a rewind. I am struggling with my voice because I have the uh, snot slinger flu, as I've called it, with these grandkids over here all the time. Uh, Dorothy getting sick and then me getting sick with a stupid head cold. And I'm trying to preserve my voice. So it, it does that. But the reality is, if I wasn't going to do this today, I would give the same intro that I'm about to bring in from 2012, and I would give it the same way. I've been using this for many years to explain seed starting, And it hasn't changed. And since it hasn't changed, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to recreate it. So what I'm going to talk about here in this segment, and I'll come back and do the rest of the parts for today's show, is how seeds actually germinate in the wild and what that teaches us about understanding seeds, seed starting, and their needs when we want to go and create artificial environments for seeds to start in. With that, we'll roll it back to 2012 for just about 10, 12 minutes. So when I start talking about starting seeds, I want to start by, let's talk about how seeds get started in nature. If Mother Nature is the master and we are the student, then before we start going off the reservation on our own, we should understand the master's work and then attempt to emulate it. And like any good apprentice, our first attempts at emulation may fail, but we know we're headed in the right direction. That's why I do this. Now, generally speaking, when we look at starting seeds, we see everything that we do as being very gentle and pampering the seeds, and we would see Mother Nature as being kind of a harsh woman, you know. She's tough, and, and it would be a very harsh environment. But when we actually start looking at the way seeds propagate themselves in the wild, we realize that Mother Nature is actually very caring. Now, if you don't pay attention to the rules, Mother Nature can hurt you. Go out in the wilderness without skill set and without a knowledge of how to navigate, and Mother Nature can kill you dead. But if you know what you're doing out there, Mother Nature can give you everything you need. Well, it, seeds know what they need. They have intrinsic intelligence. And we can start out by looking at the way seeds come in their raw, natural state. And pretty much seeds either come in a form where the seed is loose and is simply either windblown or falls or is carried by birds, but it's a loose seed, or it's in a pod. And there's not really many other ways to describe that. Uh, it's in some kind of a casing. So if we look at something like basil, those little tiny basil seeds, uh, generally speaking, they're in kind of like this little capsule. And a lot of times that capsule will stay on the stem for a very, very long time before it ruptures in some way or it's trampled over or it's fed on by birds and some of the seeds fall loose. But the capsule provides some level of protection. We look at something like a bean, uh, even a natural plant, a wild plant that's bean-like in nature. Uh, the, 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 the seeds form inside uh, the bean itself. And then that bean dries out, and that might stand and stay off the soil for a very long time. That serves an important purpose. Most seeds that propagate in some type of a casing are seeds that need warm weather to germinate, and it would be bad if they were to germinate early. So just like the little seed packet you get your seeds in, Mother Nature has her own little seed packet that she's holding those seeds in and generally keeping them in some way with vertical vegetation from contact with the ground. 
over the winter. Things start to rot. Things get trampled. Snow pushes stuff down. Rain pushes stuff down. Wind pushes stuff down. That capsule de degrades to a point where eventually the seed pops out or the capsule itself comes in contact with the soil, further degrades. Now the seed gets wet and it can germinate at the right time. Then there are other seeds that generally are loose seeds, like from a lettuce plant or a miner's lettuce plant, which is a wild version, where when those seeds fall, they're just free, or a dandelion, they're just taken by the wind. And it's, a lot of times that's based on when the plant goes to seed. So if you think about a dandelion, uh, the flowers come up in early spring, they go to seed, and they spread their seeds out. And they do that at a time of the year when it's perfect to germinate. So wherever that little dandelion seed lands, once it makes soil contact, if it eventually does, uh, it can grow right then. And so it's designed to do that. Other seeds, not so much. They have kind of a different intrinsic intelligence. If we look at something like lamb's quarters, one lamb's quarters plant produces just thousands and thousands of little tiny black seeds. And they fall all over the place. And they might make soil contact immediately, but they won't fall until it's cold and wet. And when it's cold and wet, they won't germinate. They know not to. And they'll stay down there dormant. And a lot more of them will be lost than something like a dandelion. That's why one lamb's quarter plant makes so many seeds. But of, uh, enough of them, because it's like a pound. You almost, you know, you know, it's like a half a pound. I think I got off one lamb's quarter plant. It's, it's ridiculous. It was like half of a gallon-sized Ziploc bag full of seeds off one plant. I mean, you could literally grow lamb's quarters for grain. And um, it's very high protein, too, by the way. But it uses a strategy of numbers because it doesn't have any native protection from the ground. But one way or another, all of these seeds eventually get to the ground. The temperature for the seed and the time for the seed and the photo period for the seed get to what the seed is naturally adapted to. And the seed says... Time to go. Sometimes Mother Nature plays a trick, and we get an Indian summer, and some plants that have gotten their seed to the ground might germinate early and be killed by a frost, and that generation might be lost. Hopefully some other seed took a different path and didn't germinate. But in the end, this very harsh environment that's Mother Nature is actually very, very nurturing. If you think about it, most seeds are going to germinate in some type of a field or a meadow or a glade. A glade, for those that don't know, is a place in a forest with an opening. right? So if you have about 20 feet of opening in a forest. So that, that seed, very few seeds anywhere are going to germinate in a dark part of a forest. They're going to germinate in the opening or what have you. And on that forest floor or that meadow floor or that, that field's floor will be all the dead organic matter from the previous year. Now, unlike this, this mythology about our soil being compacted, all of this dead organic matter is actually very, very loose. And it forms kind of a net. If you go into a field, you know, for you guys in the south where there's no, no snow, you go in there right now, you can see this. Those of you in northern climates where there might be snow, wait till they're after a melt and go into a, a native prairie or a native uh, meadow or something like that. And what you'll find is you, you kind of pull back some of the dead uh, organic matter from last year's growth, and it's this nice little loose net. <clears throat> and I want you to realize what's happening. Light is getting down to the soil. Now, if it were flat, matted, packed, it wouldn't get as much light to the soil. But because it's, it's in like this kind of net mesh area, it's doing a lot of things. One, it's filtering light. So light gets down there, but it's filtered, so it's not too intense. And then because it's, it's opaque, the light gets through certain holes, hits the spots that don't have holes, and it kind of bounces around there, and it extends its duration, kind of like, oh, I don't know, the inside of a greenhouse. Right? It's like a little mini greenhouse down there. And that means that it's also a place that's a little bit warmer than if it were open, bare ground. There's water vapor down there, and contrary to what many people want to believe, the biggest thing that causes global warming is water vapor. Water vapor can increase and hold temperature. So we might get a little extra one or two points of degree of temperature gain in that little pocket. Especially if we have composting going on. Not huge composting, but natural composting. Just a little bit of composting in there, pushing off one or two extra degrees of gain inside that little water vapor hole. We've got this great little cocoon. And in there is our seedling. And our seedling begins to grow. And it seeks the light. It starts trying to climb through the net. But 
it won't break the net until it kind of becomes stocky. It'll get enough light. If it doesn't get enough light, it'll get spindly and long and white, and it'll grow up and it'll fall over and it'll collapse under its own weight. It's only in the right pockets where the right seed is ready at the right time that it will build some girth and growth to it. And then eventually it'll break that canopy of organic matter and come out. And then at the base, it's supported by that organic matter. And as the season progresses on, that organic matter falls down around it like a perfect layer of mulch. And it begins to break down and continues to feed the seedling. And the seedling grows into whatever it is. That's the harshness of Mother Nature. That's the master's hand at work. That's, that's how seeds propagate in the world. Now, there's other ways that seeds propagate, but that's a very common way that seeds, especially in the temperate region where most of us live, will propagate. They're held by some uh, biological force. Their, their germination is held back. So that's our little paper envelope. That's certain seeds we might keep in a refrigerator. Some seeds might actually need to go into a refrigerator for a while to stimulate them because that will uh, substitute for overwintering. You know, some seeds have a problem with just germinating if you just throw them in. Not many, not just about none that you'll buy in a catalog, but certain exotic things that you might want to do might have that problem. So it's just good to know. So once we have that, now we have to look at, okay, now that we know what the master does, what does a seed need? What does a seed need? And it's another thing that when I, when I listen to people talk about propagating plants from seed, they ignore the needs of the seed. They, you take a plant, you put the seed in, you plant it, but it grows, right? Well, and then people get all these problems, and without knowing the needs, you don't know what you're looking at. And, and the most common need that's ignored, which is crazy when you think about it, is light. Seedlings need light. And, and I'm going to hold off on what exactly that means for a little bit. But just understand for now, seedlings need light. A lot of seedlings that need even to be, be covered, some of them need enough light that will penetrate that eighth inch of soil before they'll germinate. Some of the seedlings, that's exactly what biologically prevents them from germinating early. There has to be enough light for them to germinate. That's one way they don't get tricked by nature. Because it gets warm out in January, and it, uh, you know, oh, it's perfect temperature. I'm in a moist environment. Let's go, baby, sprout. Yeah, and then it's like 24 degrees the next night, and I'm dead, and I didn't propagate my species. Survival of the species, key to the natural order. So the, a seedling might need a certain amount of light, and when the sun's low in the sky and it's underneath that mat of vegetation, it's not going to get enough. So if we want to germinate it early to get an early start to grow something in Pennsylvania that normally wouldn't grow, let's say, north of Mexico then we need to make sure it has enough light. Um, another thing that seedlings need is moisture. I, I don't think this one is, is one that many people miss, but I, I do think that maybe if you've always worked with plants that were already propagated from seed that you bought in a store, that you can get like to a point where you don't really understand what enough water is. If you get a nice, healthy, well-started plant and it dries out for a couple hours, it's not a big deal. It really isn't. A plant will have enough reserves in its stems, right? If you take any plant that's stem-based and cut it open and squeeze the stem, you'll get moisture out of it. So even when that bottom layer of soil that it's planted in dries out, it can't do that forever, but an hour or two or even a half a day or sometimes even a day, as long as it's not in direct sunlight being baked, the plant will, will handle it. Well, think about your little seedling. Think about your little bitty seedling that's just coming up, that's a quarter of an inch tall, with two of the, 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 the pre-emergent leaves are all that's on it. How much water reserve is there for that seedling? So if that little pellet or little pot completely dries out, it will toast that seedling dead almost immediately. So we have to have moisture. We also have to have the right temperature. Seeds are designed to germinate in certain temperatures and not germinate in other temperatures for very, very clear reasons that we see when we look at how seeds germinate in the wild. If a seed is, is not frost tolerant but would germinate at, let's say, 50 degrees with low light conditions, it would never survive in the wild unless it lived somewhere where it didn't freeze at all. Because you'll get plenty of days with enough light and temperatures above 50 to cause the seed to germinate and maybe two or three days in a row like that where it doesn't go below freezing at night and that seed gets up off the ground, but then a cold front moves in and it dies. So we have to have the right temperatures for the right period of time. We have to have nutrients. Um, 
it's not a good idea to try to start your seedlings completely devoid of nutrients. Some people think that the less fertilization you give a seed, the more aggressive the root structure it will grow. And that's true. And that's why we don't want to be feeding our seedlings, you know, heavy amounts of, of organic or otherwise fertilizer. But we do want some fertility in what we're starting. Uh, and it, that means if we're using something like a soilless medium, then I believe we should occasionally uh, water with some type of a liquid organic fertilizer, like fermented beet juice or something. They need some nutrient. If they don't get any nutrient, they're not going to thrive. But you, 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 when you give an inf, you know, you wouldn't say to an infant, well, if I don't give you nutrient and if I just give you water instead of milk, you'll grow faster because it would be retarded to think that way. And I think some people think that way about seeds and then they have problems and their seeds are pale yellow instead of deep green and they're wondering why. And it's usually a nutrient deficiency. So those are all needs of the seed. There's some other ones, but those are your primary ones. Uh, they also need protection from things like wind and excessive sun, and they need to be protected from things that might step on them, like dogs and cats and birds and whatever else. And they need protection until they germinate from things that would consume them. So those are our primary needs. So anyway, I, every time that I've ever talked about that concept that you just heard from all the way back there in 2012, I've, I, I've had people like, wow, I never really thought about it like that. When I, when I do talks in public... Uh, if I bring this subject up and I have an audience in front of me, as I'm going through all of that, I see eyes open, ears open, minds open, light bulbs go on. Like, wow. Like, it, it, and see, it's, it's so basic. It really is. You, you look out at a meadow and there's a thousand plants growing in that meadow and, you know, 500, 600, 700 of them are technically annuals. And they're dropping seed every year, and they're having to come back. Now, the thing that you can't overplay is, well, they're just that tough, right? Because these plants make millions and billions and trillions and zillions of seeds. And it is just the case that in all those little micro-environments, there's going to be certain places that are perfect for each different type of seed to germinate at the right time. And generation after generation after generation, the best adapted seeds to the climate are going to end up in that area and, and just have phenomenal germination rates when they find little pocket of happiness. Because the plant's life, or it's the species' existence, depends on it. So things start to change when we decide we want to bring the seed indoors or we want to grow it in a greenhouse or whatever it is where we're saying, okay, this seed, let's say a pepper that is uh, initially native to Central America where it never freezes and it's a, a short-term perennial or even a long-term perennial in some instances down there, we now want to grow it in New Jersey or even Texas where it does freeze. And now we have to start that seed indoors so that we can meet the growing duration that we have available so that we can get enough yield off it for all of this crap to be worth doing. So if, if we live in a climate where like when, it, when the soil is finally warm enough for pepper seeds to germinate, um, it's, let's say, April 10th. And let's say that that zone has an average first frost date of, let's say, mid-September. That's a really short growing window. And we probably can get a pepper in the ground and directly sow it and get up and get some peppers off us. But, I mean, God, I mean, that's just... And that's what most of us in the United States have to look at. We have a growing window. And we have to, we have to figure out exactly, well, when do we start based on when do we want to put out these plants and when they're safe to put out. And now we go into a place where we will never have a billion seeds finding perfect little alcoves and doing it for themselves, so we have to try to emulate it. But before we do that, what we really should do is say to ourselves, what type of seed-starting system am I going to set up? And a lot of this has to do with what you have available in space, in time, and in money. So by asking a few questions, we can figure out what we're going to do. One is, how much do you want or need to start? Because I see some people and I think, wow, where are you going to put all that stuff? 
Because they're going to start like a thousand plants. Now, if you're going to sell them, like the individual that asked the question that kind of kicked off this show today, um, yeah, you, you, you want to make a lot, right? But for a lot of home gardeners, if you think about it, if you were doing square foot gardening, most, not all, but most of the garden plants that we will uh, do in a square foot garden that we won't direct sow. So, like, we're probably not going to pre-start beans. We're just going to put them in the ground at the right time. They're a fast-growing plant. We will do about one plant per square foot. So there's 16 square feet in a 4 by 4 garden. So it's 32 in a 4 by 8 That's not a lot of plants. You know, one flat that you can pick up at Home Depot, and there's a, or Lowe's, there's a, a one that Fairy Moss makes that I really like called the Prohex for a, for a high density seed tray where you're growing small, small plants out, um, is 72 in a standard flat. Well, that's, that's more than you could grow in, you know, that much space. So, a lot of times what we can do is we can begin to understand that we don't need as much as many lights or shelves or greenhouse space or whatever it is that we think we do because we don't need as many plants as we think that we do. The other thing that we can do is say to ourselves, well, can I move plants out of that seed starting area and move new plants in? For instance, like one of your earliest crops you could put in would be broccoli. Well, we might start our broccoli like a week ago. And we might be putting out well-started plants five, six weeks before we're putting out summer plants, you know, or late spring plants, like let's say tomatoes. Well, what we can do is we can get those broccoli plants up to a certain height. We can start hardening them off in a sunny window or a cold frame or something else like that say six weeks before we're going to be putting those pepper plants out. And those, then, uh, you know, six weeks is a pretty good start for peppers. I like it better, but you see what I'm saying? So if we have space constraints, we can start thinking about how long do they really need to be in this little perfect place that I've made. So we can start asking ourselves, like, what do I really have available? And pretty much, I, I, I think people, this is your options. You have indoors, garage, outdoors, or a greenhouse. I, I really can't think of another option. So let's go through them and talk about the advantages and disadvantages. Indoors. You'll need light. And there's an expense there. And there is a just a thing to do. And a thing to maintain. And a thing to watch. And a thing to pay attention to. So you, you will not be able to use sunlight in most cases indoors. If you have a big, beautiful window that lets the, the good quality light in and it's a perfect place for starting seeds, great. Most people do not have that. Um, there's either the windows don't let the right wavelengths in or they don't get enough sun. So you'll need light. But the good news is you don't need heat. Now, you still might want to look at heat in the form of like heat mats because it increases your germination rate by a great deal. Um, and then the thing about heat mats is if we're starting in phases, we use one heat mat and move it from seed tray to seed tray to seed tray as each one begins its germination. And now we just have ambient temperature to carry us forward. So the, the real beauty of indoors is we don't have to worry about heating things. The guy that asked the question to spawn this, he's in a garage in New Jersey. So he has uh, an issue with heat. It's expensive to heat. So let's talk about garage next. So if we're going to go in a garage, we're like pseudo indoors. But most garages get a hell of a lot colder than inside your house. I don't know many people that fully heat their garage. Now, if you have a wood stove or something like that in there, it might be different, right? But most people don't. So now we need to provide some sort of supplemental heating. So I feel if you're doing, and I, I have a system set up, and there's a picture of it actually today, out in one of my outbuildings, which is like a garage. And I have it in a 60 by 60 grow tent. And I have a small heater in there with a thermostatic control on it that keeps the temperature around 68 degrees at the lowest. And there, when I'm putting a new flat of seeds and I want them to germinate, I jack it up to like 74. And as soon as those seeds start germinating, I'll, I'll drop it back down. And what would be a really good idea for me to do is add some seed mats, some heating mats 
underneath the trays because then I could just keep it down in that kind of 66, 68 degree temperature. Now it's really expensive to heat a garage and when it's, you know, today it's 19 degrees right now. I think it's 24 degrees right now, a little later in the day than it was before. Let me look at my phone. Okay, wait, well, heat wave, it's up to 26. Well, it'd be really expensive to heat a garage when it's 26 degrees out or, you know, five degrees or four degrees like some of you guys are today. Um, but heating a five foot by five foot by six foot tall grow tent actually doesn't cost that much money because it's much more efficient. So if we go into garages and temperatures a problem using a combination of either tenting or heat mats, and we can build things to do this, we can get reflective foam board insulation and build ourselves a little cover that we put our lighting in, and we just open it up. It doesn't have to be really structurally sound. You can just put it around, let's say, a plastic rack system that we can put our lights into. But again, we need lights in a garage. The advantage to garage and indoors both is there's no wind. There's very little to no pest pressure, especially on young plants. Nothing's probably going to pick it up and eat it like a doggy. It's going to you know, go out there and play, make a play toy out of it. Um, we are probably going to pay attention to it on a daily basis fairly well, so we won't have a drying out of it or anything like that. But we have these electrical inputs required uh, for significant durations of time and the expense behind the technology to do it. Outdoors. People say, why would you ever start seeds outdoors? Well, you know, the reality is a lot of times it does make sense to start your seeds outdoors, but not for this time of year for most of the country. But there's, there's often the case that once you get into kind of successional planting, if you were growing lettuce early and you wanted to switch over to something like shard later in the year, that having a nice place that gets like 50% shade, 50% sun, and just set up a table and do your stuff outside, so it's up away from the doggies and the kitties and stuff like that, you know, that's really actually a great thing. And I've done a lot of that. Also, you know, everybody thinks of this time of the year as when to start seeds. But when we're going into fall gardens and winter gardens where we maybe want to do that early fall planting of broccoli and kale and then we're going to be starting seeds in August for that versus February to be putting them out in the spring. Well, if we go put broccoli seed in the ground when it's 104 degrees out, it's not going to do very well. It's going to be sad and unhappy. But a nice little shady spot with enough light coming through to give the plant the light that it needs and being watered from the bottom and keep all of a sudden now we can get those. So outdoors has its place. It's just not really for this time of year. And then the greenhouse. Everybody thinks the greenhouse is a place to start your plants. Well, it works really good in some situations, but how efficient is your greenhouse and do you have any heat with it? What people don't understand is yes, it can be right now. I just went out to my greenhouse. And it needs a little bit, it needs quite a bit of work, honestly, to seal it up and get it really efficient. But even with that, it's in the 20s right now and it is 64 degrees in there. Because it's sunny today. But the second that sun goes down, unless you have some sort of passive, you know, heat capture going on, your temperature in your greenhouse will very quickly equalize the temperature outside of your greenhouse. You only hold, even with the two big IBCs full of water in there, and a stone uh, a stone floor. I have a, about five inches of rock on the floor in there. It, it, it doesn't take long. Now, again, we can improve the efficiency, but if you're in a climate where it stays below freezing, let's say, for two straight weeks, unless you have heat in your greenhouse, your greenhouse is going to freeze, unless you, again, have some sort of thermal battery thing going on. So one of the things that makes a lot of sense with greenhouses is to have maybe a big greenhouse for the main seasons and a little greenhouse for your um, for your seed starting so you can heat a smaller area or to have a section of the greenhouse you can you can block off from the rest to only heat that section. So that's something to really think about because we don't need much space for this. You know I'm talking one or two plastic shelf sets and we're good to go. So those are your areas you, so you get, so the thing is like if you don't own a greenhouse, well, you're not going to do that, right? If you don't have a garage, you're not going to do that. If you don't have any space indoors that's really like you can do without having your partner like kill you, then you're not going to do that. So you have to make the decision based on what's available. Then we have to start thinking about lights. If we're doing indoor garage, things like that, we need to think about lights. 
So here's, in my opinion, you're really your four sources of light. If you're lucky indoors, you have a natural source of light. The sun comes in and provides some or all the light your plant needs, and then hoorah, you should use that space because that is a gift. And if you were design, if I was designing a home today, I would design a sunroom that was made for happiness in wintertime so I could sit there and be happy growing tropical plants and it would have a place as a dedicated place for seed starting. So I think it's the best in the world. I don't have it, and if you don't, then we've got to look to some other things. So we have three main sources of artificial light to pick from. LED grow lights, T8-style shop or grow lights, and T5s. T8s are your small, and there are other options. These are the primary options that are available and affordable. T8s are a little bit smaller, a little bit less heat, a little bit less efficient, and we need to get really close to our plants with them. I'm talking maybe when you have seeds in the, in the soil, that light needs to be maybe two inches off of the soil. And as that plant comes up to be an inch tall, we want to be maybe two and a half, three inches above the soil. So we're only an inch and a half, two inches above the plant. And we're going to slowly raise it as the plant comes up with it. T5s, we can be more like, you know, six inches, eight inches off the soil level, as much as a foot. And we want to go into kind of that daylight spectrum with either one of those, like the 6,500K bulbs. That said, neither one's expensive, really. And they're, like, you don't need specialty grow lights. You can go to Home Depot or Lowe's. I'm not even going to put these lights on T-SPAS because you will, be, you will get a better deal by going to Lowe's, looking at what you want, and buying it locally. Okay, so I'm not going to recommend shipping because they're bulky items. Even with Prime, they add some in to cover for that. So go to Home Depot or Lowe's if you want to go with that route. LED grow lights. You have kind of two levels of LED grow lights. You have really big high-end grow lights that are typically used for growing maybe one specialty crop with the special leaf and the little buds on it that make you go happiness when you smoke it. That's what most of this equipment has been designed to grow. And these higher-end lights are able to be higher-end and command the prices that they do because when you're growing something like that, if you're growing it for profit, there's a lot of profit and a little bit of yield. So as you start looking at the higher-end, full-spectrum LED grow lights, like the 600-watt one that I'm using this year in my grow tent, um, you're, you, know, you get up in the net, you know, a couple hundred dollars or more. You got to grow a lot of plants to pay that back off. Your lower end ones, like your 45 watt king bows, which are kind of my favorite low end LED light, you got to look at them this way. You have to run them a lot like you do a T8, a couple inches off the soil, and raise them up as the plants grow and keep them a couple three inches above the tips of your plants. The good news. The T8s and the low-end LEDs are not hot light. And if the plant grows up and touches them or gets really close, you're not going to have but your leaves burning and stuff like that. If they get really up there and stay up there for a while, they can. But it's not like you really have to stay on it. T5s tend to burn light leaves a little bit more, and your high-end, you know, like 600-watt LEDs, it, when they get up and touch, they will burn. So those are kind of your, your, your ones to pick from. I'll have a link to the 45-watt King Bows that I think are the best kind of low-end solution. And I'll have a link to the high-end King Bow that I'm running and the Grow Tent all in today's show notes. Um, I've looked at some, some, some experimentation that YouTubers have done lately. And I've been kind of surprised, actually, at how well simple T5s have done. Um, you know, off-the-shelf... Uh, T5 fluorescent lights, basically shop lights, uh, compared to some of the lower-end LEDs, uh, the T5s have actually outperformed them. And when you you look at the T, the, the, the lower-end LEDs like the Kingbow, and sure, they're like less than 30 bucks now a light, but to cover the same area that you would cover with, let's say, a, a four-bulb T5 uh, reflector, you're going to need at least three, if maybe not four of them. And so all of a sudden, you're not that different on cost. And you're not that different on power usage. 
And then the T5s, we can run them a little higher up. If we look at the T8s, um, as long as we're willing to do the movement, they kind of are a wash with the LEDs. Now, I say that, but here's my real belief in this. When it comes to starting seeds, they all work. The longer we're going to have them under lights, the better it ends up becoming that we're using LEDs if we're doing the, the grow properly. Because it gives all of the spectrum of light that that plant needs. But I also have started to think, well, you know, what about the little Taco Bell girl? You know, why can't we have both? And I have a bunch of T8 hoods from the uh, microgreens workshop we did here, and I've got bulbs for them. So today I just popped two T T8s in my uh, grow tent. They are not as close to the plants as they should be. I don't care because there's a 600-watt bang-in full-spectrum light going in there. They certainly can't hurt, and they don't draw that much extra power. And it'll be interesting to see how the plants maybe respond a little bit differently. Now, the T8s I'm using are actually set up to run microgreens, and they have one high-spectrum and one low-spectrum bulb in each one. If you were, in my opinion, if you're doing starts, not microgreens, you'd be better off with going both of those uh, bulbs being a high-spectrum. So I would make the decision between T8s and T5s this way. If you already have stuff, use the one you have and adapt to it. It will cost you significantly less if you're doing more than one row, one one shelving um, to do T8s. T5s are a little more expensive, and if you, but if you're doing one shelf, it's probably worth the convenience of not having to figure out how to make these things rise and fall. But it's it's not like it's that hard. You know, you can set the thing little hooks to hook onto something and hang yourself a couple pieces of like paracord and tie loops in it. And then just lower down to the loop and go up to the next loop. I mean, it's not like you have to be a genius to figure this stuff out. So those are the things you're going to pick from. Now, with heating, I think kind of the most efficient way to heat, if you have to go outdoors, again, is a grow tent or some sort of constructed grow tent to reduce the area down, and a small electric heater that has built-in thermostat control. Um, though it will kind of surprise you, even doing that, how much energy it can use. The most efficient way to heat to speed germination is a heat mat. I will put a link to a suitable heat mat for your standard size trays in the show notes today. Um, but it's it's amazing how much faster, if the soil's warm, your seeds will germinate. There is another option, though, with getting your seeds to germinate, and that is to find a really warm place in your house, sow your seeds into your flat, and keep it there, because many plants don't really need a lot of light to germinate. If you do this, though, you have to really be on it. And as soon as you see those little seedlings picking their heads up, wherever your light system is, you got to get them there. And, and I would almost say you're so much better off using a heat mat. They're not that expensive. Because here's what happens. Once plants get really leggy, it's very hard to recover them. I've got a video on YouTube, I'll see if I can find it and put it in today's show notes for you as well, that talks about dealing with some leggy seedlings, and I had something kind of got away from me. Um, and you can do it, I mean, you can push them down, build some dirt up around and what have you, it depends on how far they go. But once they get to a certain point, you almost never get them back to being good and healthy and stocky. Your best seedlings, you, when you first, when they first start putting true leaves on and all, you might even be a little bit disappointed. Because they start, they stay really low. And they start growing out before they really grow up. This is what you want, though. Like, everybody wants to, you know, the, the models of today are all supposed to be tall and thin. Nobody's ever like, we need a we need a, a blonde swimsuit model that's like three foot six and weighs 200 pounds. Nobody's looking for that in a swimsuit model. That's what you're looking for in a tomato. With, you know, correlatively speaking, right? Or a pepper plant. Little and beefy. Because those plants put on big foundations, and then they put on tremendous growth when it's time. So that's, again, keeping those lights low, the soil warm, and keep it moist. Determining your start dates is pretty easy. Here's what I say. Go to any of the Almanac websites and simply find your last average frost date. Add at least a week to that. That's when that plant is going to go out at the earliest. Okay. And then you just look at the seed that you're starting and get 
indications from the provider how long before it's ready to go out into a garden. And then do some, you know, do a little bit of internet research too, like how big is this particular pepper plant at eight weeks of age? Because you might find that you're willing to hold it a little longer and get it a little bigger. It could go out earlier, but you're willing to get a little more growth on it or what have you before you put it out. There's a caution here, though. The earlier you start your seedlings and the bigger you, they get, eventually they need to be potted up or they need to be put out, one or the other. And the longer you keep them in a pot, the more they can become root-bound, the more they can become stunted, or the more times you have to put them in larger containment systems and your space that was plenty big enough for a 372-cell trays is now nowhere big enough for half of your plants. And some plants grow really fast. And you just have no business touching them right now. A lot of people always direct sow cucumbers. I don't. I have no problem starting a cucumber from seed in a tray. Here's how I feel about them, though. First, we don't need that many of them. And secondly, um, a three-week-old cucumber plant growing in optimum conditions is a damn big plant. We're probably looking at two, three weeks maximum in plants like that from the day the seed goes in until that plant goes out. So we might even be taking some of our lettuces and plants that can handle that light frost that we've started, right? And they might be going out a week before our last frost date. And then those late covers, those you know, cucumbers, squash, melons, if we want to get them a little bit of a jump start two to three weeks, that's when we put those in. And again, we're freeing space as we're moving them in. And that way we get more efficient use. We spend less money on our starting system and our real estate for our starting system. But it really is that simple. You, the last frost date, add a week to it, count backwards based on time to set out, and that's really all you really need to do. Let's talk about troubleshooting some things. Uh, <clears throat> one of the big ones I hear is slow or low germination. I get, I put all these seeds in, I've only got like three of them that germinated. Um, here's a few different things that can do this. Some seeds really do need light to germinate. And if, if you've planted them too deep, it, it's a problem in of itself, but if it's so deep that there's not enough light getting through the soil to trigger germination, they won't germinate. That's one thing. The biggest reason you have poor germination, though, is either you have shitty seeds, which is usually not the case, but it's possible. And when you have, like, you've put out, let's say, 10 varieties of seeds, and only one didn't come up, it's probably that it's shitty seeds. And if specifically you have four kinds of peppers, and three came up and one didn't, well, it's probably you have shitty seeds. Some seeds are notoriously hard starting in many instances, like celery, and if that's the case, it may just be that your conditions are wrong. In most instances, though, when you have a lot of failure to germinate, or only one plant type germinating well, it's just highly adaptive, and your conditions are wrong for everybody. The number one way conditions get wrong, soil's too cool, soil's too wet, soil's too dry. Those are your, your things to check. If your soil is mopping wet, that's generally not good. And some seeds will actually rot in that condition. If it is dry at all, like, like it's dry to the touch, this is really bad. If you have a pepper plant that's like eight weeks old and the soil dries completely out, it's going to look really sad, but odds are if you find it quickly enough and water it, it will recover. It has a certain amount of moisture stored in its roots, its stems, and its leaves. It has a certain amount of time, unless it gets baked in the heat or whatever, that it can get by being really dry. If it gets sort of dry, it's dry at the top, but it's still a little bit moist at the bottom, its roots can get to that moisture, it's going to be okay. A seed, once it begins the germination process, if it completely dries out, you kill it. The life in it just gets lost. It's wasted. So we really need to keep our soil damp, not wet, until our germination occurs. And what I always say is this. If you have, let's say, a flat, and you have a row of six in it, and you put in that six spinach plants, and you look one day, and five of them are up, and one of them isn't, throw a couple seeds in that one right away. And if the other ones come up, you can just pick some out. Dead them out, right? But don't wait a long time because 
they're already ahead of their brothers, so to speak. And I usually throw three to four seeds in each segment, unless I don't have many seeds or I know it's a really good seed stock and I don't need to. I prefer to pick out as little as possible. And I'll tell you what I, what I usually do. I usually don't pull out uh, seedlings. I usually take a little pair of snips, like a little pair of scissors, and I pull them aside. I snip them off. That way I'm not pulling out and disturbing the roots of the ones that I'm leaving behind. I will prick them out if I have to because like they're there and I need to do it now, but I prefer to cut them off. Uh, a little razor knife, too, is another way you can do that. And a lot of times the seedlings are good to eat. Like it's a little snack while you're doing it. It's a little reward for being a good boy at the end of your seedlings. I just did uh, arugula today. And I just ate a bunch of little peppery arugula microgreens, basically. But almost almost to the to the letter, the slow germination is either heat or moisture related. So keep an eye on those. The next one is leggy. That's the seedling that's like really tall. You're really happy about it. It just kind of falls over. It's just sad. This is almost, almost always a light issue. And a lot of times people say, well, I'm using the LED grow lights, and they send you a picture, and the light is 18 inches above the plant. And they're using a, you know, a $30, 45-watt grow light that, let's be honest, it's probably more like a 35-watt grow light. That's probably what it's really putting out power-wise. That needs to be two inches away. Or using T8s, like the microgreen guys do, but they're, yeah, they're a foot up. Or it's in a sunny window, but the window blocks you. It's a UV blocking glass. Or they're in a sunny window, but the sunny window is sunny for two and a half hours a day, and there's no real sun. It's just ambient light for the rest. I mean, it's, it's almost always the case. So increase your light. If, if anything looks like legginess, get the light closer, get more light on the plant, move it to where there's more light. If you don't do it quickly, you're probably going to lose your seedlings. Um, I've seen some that I was like, that's never going to come back, and they came back. So it can be done, but the best thing is to prevent it from happening. Poor color. Poor color can also be a light issue, and it can also be a nutrient issue. It drives me mad when people say, well, you should never fertilize your seedlings because then they won't put on good roots. Well, then you should never feed your baby because he won't grow big enough legs to walk. If he has to grow big enough legs to walk... Right, then, then then he'll walk to where the food is. So you should just give him just enough to survive. So he builds. You see, okay. Um, you don't need a lot of fertilizer in these systems, but uh, you know, just a, a couple tablespoons once every two weeks of something like Doctor Earth Liquid Gold into your water. And I prefer to water from the bottom up. I put my seeds in a seed tray. Lift up one side and fill the tray halfway with water and let the water wick up into the system. Just a couple teaspoons. And if you think you need more, maybe you get more, make up a little bottle of either Dr. Earth or uh, uh, Garrett juice uh, to you know adjust according to the label down to just a mister bottle. And just maybe once every few days, if they're not looking good, mist them with that. And when they come up to... Uh, looking good, then you can back that off. I'm not saying do it to everything all the time. I'm saying watch it, and when you see leaves that are yellow, that should be green, and it's not fixed by adjusting the light, give it some nutrient. Um, it all depends on the, 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 the potting soil and what have you. And here's the thing. A lot of times I'm using this really great organic potting mix, and so it should have all the nutrient it needs. Well, <clears throat> here's the thing, guys. Soil doesn't just have nutrients in it. It has life in it that makes nutrients available. And if that soil is a little plug of soil that you got out of a bag in that one little cell that you put that pepper seed into, and it had sitting on the shelf for a long time, a lot of the life that was in there from the compost seeds and all has just kind of gone to sleep, it, it takes a lot for things to kick off. And there's not much of an ecosystem in that little cell. When we put plants out early in the spring, this is why I'm a big believer in heavy organic fertilization when you set plants out in the spring. The soil's still cold. All the little beneficial organisms that actually do the breakdown and make things available to the plants, that make the nitrogen, the manganese, the cadmium, etc., of uh, cadmium, calcium available to the plants, boron, zinc, right? The, the potassium, the phosphorus, that makes all that stuff available, generally ain't real active yet. 
So it could be there, but it can be in a form your plant can't get. And it takes a while for that to get kick-started. So fertility is, is important, even with seedlings. And the longer you're going to grow them, and the bigger you want them to be before they go out, the more that becomes the case. The next is like mold and slime. You get like lots of uh, green mold and stuff on your, on your uh, dirt. Um, if your plants are doing well, it won't last long. They'll basically shade it out. A lot of times, if it's like a mold, like a, a fuzzy, whitish mold or whatever, it's because you're not getting enough light. UV light will often just destroy a lot of those things. If it's like a green slime, you're probably staying too wet too long. And, and simply by backing down the water a bit, you'll probably clear that up. If you have a, a cell or a group of cells that you've put seeds into, they've gone green slime and the plants never came up or the one or two that did just kind of died off, just dump it and refill it and start over. I, I don't know exactly what's going on there biologically. I'm tell you, once that happens, if you don't have plants growing, they tend to just not grow. And, and that's really all there is to it. I think that we've made this subject way more complicated than it needs to be. My grandfather did this in a cold frame. He had a hole in the ground underneath the grapevines. Grapevines were pruned back in the winter, so the light got in there just fine. Uh, it was about a four-foot, maybe six-foot by four-foot hole. It had a big, heavy old window he salvaged from somewhere with a chain and a pulley. And he would put a bunch of compost down in there in February. Actually, he'd put it in there in, like, January. So by the time we got to February, it was break down enough to be producing heat. And he would keep it closed at night. And depending on the temperature during the day and how much sun, he'd either close it or open it a certain amount. He just threw his seeds in, in flats and threw them in there. And that was in Pennsylvania. And we ate, we ate good every year. Now, he didn't... There's the thing. Like, that does work, but he was growing adapted tomatoes and peppers to his garden. And he wasn't starting a lot of things like we do today. You know, he was growing one row of 40 tomato plants, one row of 40 pepper plants, because we were growing... To put stuff up. And, you know, he, he would have never started a cucumber early. He would have never started, you know, dill or herbs early. All that stuff went in the ground when it was ready. So we have to maybe be a little more sophisticated today. We're trying to grow some exotic stuff and some unique stuff and things like that, and it's fun. But we can do that without getting too fussy. And, and honestly, you could do worse than picking up two or three reflect you know reflector uh systems for t5s at home Depot lows and a cheap plastic thing and setting it up in a spare bedroom and sticking your plants on there you know you don't need to go out and spend a thousand dollars on a plant rack system that's basically that because even if they're using a higher end bulb okay well it's still a t5 bulb in most instances when you buy these systems like and, and you're paying you know, $500 for this steel frame rack that, 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 frankly, they probably have about 15 bucks into. But it's made for plants, with big air quotes. I will say this about the T5s and T8s. As that light goes across them, that tips the ends where they, where they go into the connectors, they tend to dim off there. I would just say your last six inches on both sides, don't have plants out that far. Have them more toward the center. If you look at how the guys do microgreens, it's exactly how they do it. Well, that's all I got in me today, guys. Um, if you can't tell, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm this cold is kicking my ass. But uh, I, I do hope you enjoyed it. I do hope it gets you headed off in the right direction with your seed starting. Again, light, temperature, moisture. Those are your, those are your issues. And uh, doing things indoors, you eliminate wind. And wind is a bitch on seedlings. That's probably one of the biggest things. If you're going to do seedlings in an outdoor location, uh, even when you're past danger of frost and all that, you need wind blocking. Wind takes away your moisture, dries them out, and causes death, and it just beats the hell out of them. I've had years where we're not going to get any more frost. You put pepper plants in the ground, and the wind comes in and just rips them to shit. I've been out there setting up plywood with cinder blocks and all to build wind breaks and all, and it's the only thing you can do once that happens. So, so think a lot about wind breaking when you're putting your seedlings out or when you're setting up a seedling area outdoors. When in doubt, make sure the soil stays moist, not wet, and get the lights closer to the plants and everything will be okay. 
With that, we're going to wrap up for the day. I don't have a T-SPAS item of the day for you today, but I will just remind you that if uh, you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. No matter what you buy, you can see everything I've ever reviewed on Amazon. They're broken down into categories. Again, the uh, way to get to that site, tspaz.com, tspaz.com. And it's a real easy way to support us because you're spending money you probably would have spent anyway a lot of the time. Song of the Day today is by Meatloaf. John Adam picked this one out. It's called Liver Diets from 2011. I'll be honest, I'm not, I don't hate this song from a standpoint of like just the listening quality of it. I'm not in love with it. Um, Meatloaf was such an amazing guy and I think he's kind of lost the pipes a little bit and I, I don't think he's capable, even in 2011, wasn't capable of making music like he made in the 70s and 80s. And uh, so he's he's gone different ways, and this way was kind of like a throwback to like '80s hard rock, is what it really sounds like more than anything else. Um, I don't again. I like this better than like his his latest album. I just can't stand it. I was listening to an interview with him, and he said, "You know, you're going to hate it at first, but if you listen to it three or four times, you'll be like, oh, I see what they did.' And I'm like, dude, I'm I love you, but what you did with your last album was you threw some shit together." And you did what you could with what you had left in you. And it just ain't what made you famous. It ain't what made people love you. Sorry. Uh, I can listen to it ten times and I'll hate it more. This one's not like that. But I do like, and I know why John, John Adam picked it. It's the message, live or die. It's the concept that in any situation, whether it's just day-to-day living or dire circumstances, you got to take a shot at life. Or you might as well just lay down and die. You know, my dad used to say, just kind of that, that philosophy reflected a little bit differently with some work ethic. He used to say that uh, you guys take naps today and stuff and breaks all the time. Back when I was, you know, your age, and I, you know, I'm like eight at this point, right? You know, on a construction site, like if, if a guy laid down on the job, you know, for more than 20 minutes, they started throwing dirt on him because they figured he was dead, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, there is a, a certain threshold that we have of time on the earth. And we need to be making the most of it. Like I said yesterday, we need to look at life like you're eating the best baby back rib you've ever had. And you're sucking the taste and moisture and juice off the bone to when you give the dog the bone. The dog's like, dude, you're a prick. There's nothing left for me here. I don't even want to eat this now. There's no flavor in it anymore. That's live or die. That's what that's really all about. So again, not my first choice of song. Some of you guys are going to love it. Some of you are going to feel like me about it. Some of you won't like it. I think that's the great thing about music. It, it's it's very subjective, and that's why I'm glad that I have John helping to make sure that I play a variety of things and not just the things that I particularly uh, have keyed in on. Great song, great message, great artist. Not in decline completely yet at the time of this one, but uh, boy, if you listen to that most recent Meatloaf album, you'll be like, dude... Do what you can to go back to the old days. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Daddy said, Daddy said, son.
Left and right. 